Welcome to the Axial Podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who is compelled to build their own enduring business. Hey, Rishi, thanks for uh, doing this podcast today with us. Uh, really appreciate it. You might be the, out of, we've done like 20 of these so far. You might be the person I've known the, uh, the most well, personally wise, than all the other guests. So, uh, you know, be a little nervous. <laughs> we might know each other a little too well here. Uh, uh, glad to hear that. Glad to be here. Um, yeah, appreciate it. Excited to, excited to chat. Cool. How about you do a brief introduction on you and White Trap? Sure. Um, so my name is Rishi Beatty. I'm the CEO of Ytrap. Um, Ytrap is a biotech startup. We're focused on developing multi-specific fusion proteins for cancer immunotherapy. So you might be familiar with immune checkpoint inhibitors like anti-PD-1, anti-CTLA-4, uh, which have been transformative for the treatment of many challenging solid tumors, diseases like late-stage non-small cell lung cancer, melanoma, you know, that with previous standard of care chemotherapy were you know very very tough diseases very limited survival rates they're still a tough diseases but immune checkpoint inhibitors have uh, been transformative for for some patients um and really meaningfully extended long-term survival um the flip side though is that it remains the case that most patients and most cancer types don't respond uh, indications like colorectal cancer prostate cancer ovarian cancer huge disease burden, uh, but have proven essentially completely resistant to immunotherapy, despite a lot of clinical development effort and dollars from, you know, top companies in the space going after it. So it's not for lack of trying that uh, many of these indications are, um, remain very challenging to treat with immunotherapy. So Ytrap is focused on addressing the reasons that we believe immune checkpoint inhibitors don't work in these tumor types. We've constructed over, you know, many years an understanding of why simply activating and expanding T cells, which is essentially what immune checkpoint inhibitors or ICIs do, is insufficient, or in some cases may even be counterproductive. And coupled with that, we've developed an engineering platform of modular protein components to build our internal portfolio of multifunctional molecules that we hope are capable of counteracting these myriad the mechanisms um so that's sort of the 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 trap story in a nutshell is um what we believe is a deep understanding of uh the reasons that the tumor immune microenvironment is resistant to immune checkpoint inhibition and the sort of accompanying engineering platform to build a pipeline of, of multi-specific molecules that can address those multiple mechanisms okay um, so on the biology yeah. side you have you know, essentially checkpoint inhibitors take the brakes off the immune system to attack cancer cells and hopefully clear them out and then x number of patients respond maybe 30 percent or something or some heuristic like some some range like that um depending on the, the indication um maybe we can dig in deeper like what's your belief and why most a lot of patients don't respond to like a keytruda or other checkpoint inhibitors um is it because of the microenvironment is it because of the you know target engagement or maybe a combination of all these things sure i think the you know breaks analogy that you give for immune checkpoint uh, inhibitors or rather releasing the breaks being what immune checkpoint inhibitors does i feel like that's quite an instructive analogy um i think you can think about our thesis as follows if immune checkpoint inhibitors are releasing the brakes we're helping steer the car oh right so um an immune checkpoint inhibitor is agnostic to the phenotype of the immune cell, the T cell in the tumor. So if your tumor is chock full of good T cells, T cells that if activated would evoke potent anti-tumor immunity, immune checkpoint inhibition is gonna do a great job because you're releasing the brakes on a car that's fundamentally steering in the right direction towards anti-tumor immunity. And we think those are the cases where you get good responses. But in some tumor types, for a variety of the reasons that, that we can dig into, the immune microenvironment in the tumor is not full of the desirable anti-tumoral T cells steering in the right direction. 
Um, in some cases, they're steering off in a suppressive direction where activating them suppresses anti-tumor immunity. It's a little bit um, counterintuitive. Um, and in other cases, their activation might in fact be counterproductive as they might do things that are tumor promoting through promoting angiogenesis, promoting a metastases, even directly promoting tumor cell proliferation. So we believe that in order to make immune checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapy in general work in a larger diversity of patients and cancer types than has been the case so far, you need to do your immune cell activation and expansion through ICIs, but you need to couple that with blocking the factors that are steering the immune response in the wrong direction. So tumor cells have many mechanisms of skewing the phenotype of T cells, amyloid cells, other stromal cells in the tumor into a phenotype that is immunosuppressive and tumor promoting. So simply releasing the breaks in those cases won't help. You have to release the breaks and block the key signaling mediators that are skewing the phenotypes of these of these um, tumor polarized cells in the in the. That in makes the sense. So you microbes. have like this, you know, you have a salt tumor, and it's like a a little ball of cancer cells and immune cells and a bunch of, a bunch of other cells, and 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 so when you take a K-true to PD one inhibitor, will like kind of make hopefully make immune cells more likely to clear out those cancer cells, but there's other immune cells and maybe they're becoming suppressive and there's other protein factors that are causing that. Maybe it's released by cancer or some other, other cell. Could you describe a white, what actually a, a white trap is? Uh, sure. Protein and like why it's able to not only release the breaks, but then like, um, what's the, like steer certain immune cells and how does also how do you identify protein factors as you build out the, the, these libraries of proteins? Like you have to, you have to know which factor in which cancer type is important. Yeah. So to start with, you know, your first um, question, um, the majority of our pipeline is. Um, the majority of our pipeline consists of multifunctional proteins that we call Y-traps, also the name of the company. And um, so Y-trap, you know, simply alludes to the shape of the molecule. So antibodies shaped like a Y, um, our constructs are fusion proteins where we take a normal antibody, a normal IgG style antibody and fuse an additional trap domain onto the molecule. So that additional trap domain is generally a naturally occurring receptor extracellular domain. So it continues to perform its natural function. That is bind its cognate ligand. The antibody continues to do its job, bind the antibody target. So by fusing these two moieties together, you now have a bifunctional molecule where the antibody is doing its job, the receptor ECD or trap as we call it, is doing its job sequestering a particular um, ligand. So that's kind of the, the Y-trap concept. Um, we've since you know evolved from that and built many different multi-specific formats and sort of expanded our tool chain beyond you know, the original sort of Y-trap structure that you know, others have also developed where we're you know, um, hardly, hardly the first yeah. um, to, to fuse an antibody and a, and a receptor. Um, one thing on the protein side, like traps are kind of, like you said, they're like, since the eighties, at least like Regeneron got started with trap technology. Like what was the key breakthrough? And remember you, uh, uh, the nature paper published on this work in like 2014, what was like the key breakthrough? Was it using these traps in a certain like cancer type, or was it the fact that you're using a natural receptor or what was the kind of the key technical breakthrough that kind of enabled all this to happen? Right. So as you alluded to, folks have been constructing uh, recombinant proteins comprising natural traps uh, uh, for a long time. People have been engineering those traps as well. You know, Regeneron has a marketed product, um, a Flibercept, which is an engineered chimera of VEGF receptor um, components. Um, so um, that technology and the idea of using receptor ECDs like this has been, you know, in the works for a long time. Um, I don't think Y-trap 
sort of precipitated any sort of technical breakthrough. For us, it's really been about target selection and not just target selection, but which particular targets make sense to go together in a particular bifunctional. You know, um, some folks develop bispecific simply because there are two targets and you have to hit both of them. So why not make one molecule instead of two for expediency and um, cost saving reasons? Um, for us, uh, that's certainly part of the benefit, but a huge part of the story is blocking particular cytokines and particular ligands in the immediate microenvironment of particular cells. So if we have an antibody that binds a particular cell surface receptor, for example, our receptor ECD, the trap, is now decorating that targeted cell in a very specific and very complete way. And we've found this to be very important since a lot of signaling in immune cells in the tumor microenvironment is very paracrine or even autocrine, meaning the same cell is producing the ligand that it is then responding to. So in order to counteract you know, really tight signaling loops like that, it's really important to make the cell completely impervious to any response to that ligand. And, and we found that the Y-trap construct we're both sneezing here. We're both sneezing. I made you sneeze. I sneeze first. <laughs> uh, we'll edit this out. Don't worry. No worries. Um, so we found that you know the Y trap construct is really effective at allowing us to decorate target cells with ligand blockade, and and we found in many cases that to be um, impressively more effective than even combination administration of the two agents. So it's not just uh, bringing two targets together into one molecule. There's also a lot you know, of, of selection in, in which moieties you fuse together and how you get that therapeutic effect of localized ligand blockade. Yeah. Um, a situation where two is maybe not better than one, or maybe one construct has some sort of advantages in a cancer assault tumor type uh, that's kind of complex a very complicated conversation maybe we'll touch on in the end too i just one observation i've had as an investor is like some companies especially like in cancer there's always somebody a kol that can identify what targets to pursue or like what the key drivers are and it's based on intuition it's based on just a, a vast repository of knowledge at least for wide trap who do you refer to to get that knowledge, to like to get a sanity check on your targets, to make sure, like, okay, if we're going to go after PD-1 plus TGF-beta, is that going to be the correct approach in this cancer? Like, as a founder, how do you, who do you refer to to, like, ensure that you're making the right decision? Like, this is the first step for drug development, and it's, like, could lead to massive ramifications down the line. And, yeah. Sure. So um, this might, you know, tie into talking about the, origin story of, of um, Y-traps, so, you know, yeah. this might sort of naturally seg into that. Yeah. Um, I guess my first comment on on your question is that is that at least Y-trap thesis is to not outsource that work. You know, we feel our fundamental contribution is in the identification of these targets and the construction of these specific combinations of targets in these multi-specific molecules. So for us, that's very much our differentiating secret sauce is the biology and the specific therapeutic approach that we've chosen to pursue. Um, so um, Y-Trap, the company, um, started with the work of my father, actually. He's, uh, uh, or he was for, for a long time, an oncologist at Johns Hopkins. And you know, over many years had built up in his group um, a deeper understanding of how tumors are able to reshape the tumor immune microenvironment in this way that I've described to be suppressive with respect to anti-tumor immunity and hospitable to, to tumor growth. So, you know, our scientific story and fundamental beliefs about uh, tumor biology and immunology really stem from insights that he had in his academic lab. Um, and that was definitely beneficial for the company, you know, for for those ideas to be able to incubate and 
you know, mature over many years, not on a startup time scale, but sort of on an academic career time scale. Um, so that was that was you know certainly helpful and allowed Ytrap to kind of when the company side got started to hit the ground running in a sense with some already you know relatively um, strong beliefs about the right way to address the um, tumor microenvironment. The other piece that I would say is that um, you know you mentioned the idea of you know PD one plus something, um, and I think that's where a lot of the field has gone. Um, that's, uh, you know, the thesis for a lot of companies is, you know, have your new one target, combine it with anti-PD-1 and you're off to the races, you know, partner with Keytruda and, you know, see, see where that takes you clinically. I think our hard won lesson has been, and perhaps, you know, the field's hard won lesson in the last several years is that it's not that easy. And, despite the phenomenal success of PD-1 as a single agent, bringing in a second thing and sort of throwing it on with PD-1, you know, might make some theoretical sense and you might be able to convince yourself that, you know, you found the, you found the critical piece that PD-1 was missing. And, you know, if you just bring your one agent in with, with PD-1, it's going to be great. Um, I think the clinical results of the last few years have, you know, unfortunately spoken for themselves and suggested that, you know, that's probably not going to be the case. You know, there's not going to be a second magic bullet that sort of slides right in um, with a PD-1 and just solves the problem. So um, we've come to the, 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 the conclusion that uh, you really need to hit multiple targets. Yeah. And, you know, um, Correcting the polarization in the tumor microenvironment is not a one-target job. And that's why we build multifunctionals. That's why we believe that our optimal clinical regimen will actually be a combination of two or more multifunctional molecules. Um, so it's, you know, maybe a little bit of a tough pill to swallow if 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 you if you you know really want to believe in your one target plus PD1. Um, but um I think the right way to approach it is really what is the set of targets that are critical and how can you build the smallest number of molecules to address that multiple or that set of multiple targets um and that's where you know we've landed on on, on thinking about that is, is rather than you know putting all of our eggs in a single target basket um making sure that we are um hitting the 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 multiple sometimes redundant or synergistic pathways that are really working together to create this this problematic um tumor microenvironment great that makes a ton of sense that's that's fairly unique um and it was fairly unique you know a couple of years ago when the white trap got started uh, uh given you know io boom was still kind of in full, full war even you know in 2018 ish 17 ish uh maybe we can talk about the white story uh, and your story and how you got to build a company. I think what, when I first met you, uh, you were director of machine learning at System One, not called Herophilus. Great name, Saul. I think Saul probably listened to this, so um, great name. Um, and you were also building White Trap. So you had like two jobs, very stressful, a lot of work. And I'm like, wow, how, how is Rishi doing all of this? Uh, it was amazing. So maybe we can start off like how did you get involved in like science were you always entrepreneurial you know like yeah how did you like what, what kind of some formative experiences that like maybe set you up to lead and build a white trap sure yeah absolutely i'm happy to to talk about that happy to talk about that talk a little bit about herophilus as well you know really really um respect what what they're building um, and you're also a distributed bio, and uh, Jacob Glanville's awesome. So that's a whole other experience too, where it's like you got exposure to venture backed, and you also got exposure to I would would you call it distributed bootstrapped or I don't know distributed is more like um, is it the whole different approach to building? You got the full flavors of building biotech companies. Yeah, I think I think bootstrap is probably fair to describe a distributed bio. You know, we, we can we can talk more about it, but. I would say beyond just bootstrapped, I think that doesn't quite do it justice. Exactly. It's, really, it's really an incredibly long game uh, played by uh, their 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 original founder, Jake Lanville. And you know, I think now he's he's 
he's really seeing that long game play out on the end, and it's, it's actually quite remarkable to see, you know, the whole the whole picture. But maybe we can, uh, maybe we can come back to that. I'll talk to Jacob some other time. I'll, I'll you do should, Jacob yeah. One. Jacob. Yeah. Uh, right. So okay. So um, maybe we start at um, Stanford. Um, I studied computer science and biology, uh, focused on machine learning methods, AI methods. Um, well, just one quick question: You yeah, go to sure. Stanford. Did you want to do biology? You said your dad did biology, or you're like, screw biology. I'm going to do social networking. You know, I'm going to do uh, you know AI, like or doing cs and bio was it part of your master plan um it's funny it 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 was part of my master plan or it's what i sort of had envisioned but i didn't really know what it meant and i didn't I certainly didn't appreciate when entering stanford the extent to which computational tools and ai machine learning tools specifically would be just you know critically important in various aspects of biology research and drug development. So I think I had a very hazy idea that it was something that was exciting to me. And I liked the story, you know, at least as I sort of had it hazily put together in my mind, but I didn't really know what it meant or sort of how it would be reduced to practice. Um, so I think I had a couple of, you know, formative experiences at Stanford that really showed me what it actually meant. And, you know, kind of conveniently for me, um, what it actually meant was exciting and I liked it. So this sort of vague idea that I had of what I wanted to do translated I think quite well into 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 what it into what it ended up being, or at least I liked what it ended up being. Um, so uh, at Stanford, um, one I was I was super lucky to meet Jake Lineville, who we you know talked about uh, briefly. Uh, he was a, a, a graduate student uh, while I was an undergrad. Um, I walked into a, a graduate clinical immunology seminar. Uh, I think was pretty easily identified by the program administrator, uh, Maureen, as a unmoored undergrad, uh, but, you know, with his heart in the right place. So she spoke with me for about 45 seconds, and I think and then immediately concluded, you need to meet Jake, and, and rushed me over to, to meet him. And, you know, um, we worked together for a number of years uh, while I was at Stanford. Uh, I worked with his uh, first company, Distributed Bio worked on a bunch of projects with him. And he was incredibly generous in his time. And, you know, now um, I look back on that and that was certainly a formative, you know, research experience um, for me. And I definitely learned a ton about protein engineering and, you know, the space that we're in. Um, so you were, you were Jake Glanville's like assistant, like, well, he's at Mark Davis's lab. And then that's I right. Jacob got like 20 papers in grad school. Jeez, that must've been a lot of work, Rishi. Uh, yeah, I was not involved with the vast, vast, vast majority of, of what he did. We sort of had our, you know, um, side quests. Um, okay, cool. One college. Okay, right now, I'm looking at you. This is only a recording, not video. When did you start growing your beard? Because when I was in college, my I started growing a beard around like junior year. I was a late bloomer. Did you enter college with a beard, or did that kind of grow over time, or like so? I went to a, you know, um, pretty, you know, um, buttoned up high yeah, school, exactly. you know, um, not old school, pretty, so not, pretty preppy, Rishi. not a religious, but yeah, definitely a secular preppy school. And one of the sort of, you know, strong commandments was no beard. Um, and I think, you know, I would not characterize my college experience in any meaningful way as a rebellious, but I guess growing a beard as soon as I got to college was, you know, my one, my, you know, small act of, my small act of, of yeah, Rishi of was you were, okay, just from LinkedIn research, valedictorian, right? What well, okay, another personal? What was your speech about? What was your valedictorian speech at Gilman School? Was it just like you know what these rules think? Was it very <laughs> anti-authoritarian or was it more like buttoned down? I did a valedictorian speech, and my speech was really boring. Yeah, I had a lot to say. I just like you know what I'm not gonna say anything. I'm just gonna just you know do do five minutes and walk off. So, uh, so it was interesting, you know. I, I the <laughs> the I think I was I was well coached by the faculty member whose job it was to you know sort of coach the person giving the speech, um, and I think he accurately pointed out to me that in many ways the purpose of the graduation ceremony is really for the parents, not the graduates. Oh, okay. And I think you know. Disappointing as that might have been to my grandiose ideas for what I wanted to talk about, I think that was good advice. And I think, I think, I, 
I think my speech generally reflected that, um, which is, you know, really, I think the point is, is, uh, is, a, is a demonstration of gratitude to the, the many people that have brought the class at that point, parents, teachers, you know, the, the sort of broader community. So um, I think that's probably sound. Um, I will say that our school also had a tradition where we had to give um, senior speeches. Um, and that was, you know, really an opportunity to talk about whatever you wanted in, in front of the whole school. And, and, and that was fun. I talked about curiosity. Cool. Yeah, um, I think you just build the tapestry of your story that you're creative, a little subversive, but you know how to follow the rules. And so you're Stanford, you know, we're Jacob, you know, doing all the projects. Uh, like, was there some sort of like, what was your first exposure to startups? So you're at Stanford, and this is like yeah, the sure. boom. This is when like Facebook's huge, and everybody wants to do social networking, and everybody wants to make a iPhone app. Uh, like, how did you think about startups? If, uh, how did you buck the trend almost? Because most people are. When I was in college, everybody wanted to do an iPhone app or some sort of like Uber for X. Very few people were like, oh, biology, life sciences is, is interesting. Now it seems kind of too popular right now. But at the time in college, what was your first exposure to like being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I would say I kind of got into startups through sort of a backdoor. Um, you know, I have huge respect for, you know, the very entrepreneurial people who sort of go to college maybe even only for a year or two and then you know figure out what it is they want to build and just go fucking build it you know i think that's that's impressive um and you know very cool for people that have that kind of clarity um for me uh i didn't feel like i had that uh, i felt like i was interested in you know i think that in areas that people you know now classify as like deep tech right i think i was i was interested in sort of digging deep on you know challenging technical problems and i didn't feel like i had the experience you know um after college to you know go start a company yeah. um it seemed like an like an appealing future thing to do but that was it was certainly not part of you know any sort of master plan um and i think you know as most people interested in uh biology you know uh figure out pretty early is if you want to you know uh do something exciting in the space and you want to really have a deep enough understanding of the science and the engineering in order to do something useful, you probably have to get a PhD. Yeah. And, you know, I'm totally open to that. It seemed like a very reasonable path. It seemed cool to spend a few years, you know, um, doing self-directed research. So I was sort of on the PhD train. I had, I had finished my master's and I was about to start um, the PhD um, at Stanford. I had a really good time working, you know, as an undergrad and a, as a master's student with Ron Dror, um, you know, uh, just a great person and a great a mentor to me. Um, learned a ton about uh, about structural biology and protein biophysics. Working with him, also learned a ton about machine learning. Um, working with him and, and one of his graduate students, Raphael Townshin, who has also started an exciting company, Atomic AI, that maybe you'd be interested in um, chatting with him about. Um, anyway, all of this is to say that I was sort of on the academic train and. Um, you know, pretty, pretty excited about, about the PhD life, but also, you know, wanted, wanted a little bit of a break. I'd, I'd been at Stanford for five years. I was about to sign up to be at Stanford for five more years. You know, so thought maybe, you know, a little interlude would be um, beneficial. So I, I, you know, was going to take six months to work at System One, now, now known as Herophilus, um, this neuroscience drug discovery company in the dog patch in, in San Francisco. Um, when, uh, Sean and Saul, the founders, you know, pitched me what Herophilus was. You know, it was this scrappy startup growing brain organoids to do better data-driven ML-first drug discovery in neuropsychiatric disorders. You know, one, it just sounded like a mad science to me because I had very little background in stem cells or a neuroscience. So it just seemed like crazy, futuristic, future of drug development you know, was, was stoked to, to, to check it out. Um, so I, so I joined for six months, but then six months became a year and then a year became two years. And, you know, I sort of, uh, I fell off the, you know, going back to grad school train. Um, I think they were, you know, very, uh, progressive as a company in, you know, not being very credentialist. 
Um, I think a lot of places are, you know, very fixed on, you know, what people with a PhD can do and then what people without a PhD can do. And I think they both came from, you know, um, interesting academic backgrounds themselves. So sort of had appreciation for the fact that, you know, it didn't have to be that way. Saul, you know, uh, founded two companies uh, before going back to grad school for his PhD and then um, is now a professor at UCSF. Um, Saul's a crazier story. Saul's like two venture-backed startups, one backed by Sequoia. And then this final, and this is like the dot-com bubble, all this stuff. And then he goes back to grad school as like, what, a 40-year-old, a 35-year-old or something? And then becomes a professor at UCSF. Then starts another company. It's like, it's, I'm, I'll do one of Saul one of these days. Uh, so, Saul's story is nuts. One quick question is like, you, you know, you're on the academic track, join System 1. What was your dad or family? Were they, do they still want you to get a PhD or uh, like what's the like what was that pressure like and how did you deal with that? I think I, I'm I'm very lucky to have um, very understanding parents who you know are 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 supportive of of whatever I do. So you know I, yeah, my parents are both physicians, but I don't think I ever felt pressure from them to go to medicine at all. I think in fact, you know, being inside something, you're intimately familiar with the trials and tribulations that it brings. So, you know, I think, I think, I think for them seeing me get into biology and into medicine, you know, um, of course they were pleased, but they also sort of knew what I was signing up for. So I think, you know, they were always very hands-off in terms of letting me make, make my own decisions there. So I was, you know, lucky to not have to deal with that. As, so what, you know, what came first? Did, did the Y-Trap get started? Or did you join System 1 and then White Trap got started? Right. So this was all sort of happening around the same time. So uh, technically, White Trap had been started earlier. You know, um, my father had, you know, started the process of spinning the, uh, uh, of spinning the company out, licensing the technology, the initial technology from Johns Hopkins. So, you know, that ball was rolling and, you know, for me, for me personally, it was sort of something to work on the side. You know, I was, I was helping where I could, you know, helping with, you know, the, 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 the protein engineering side where I could helping with, you know, other sort of, you know, we were all learning for the first time, how do you start a company and how do you, you know, build that from scratch? So it was fun for me as sort of a side hustle to sort of help out where I could and learn about that process since it was cool. And it was kind of exciting for me to have a front row seat to, you know, getting it off the ground. Um, what, what was it? So like, uh, white traps getting spun out. You're getting your job start system one. Was there a moment where like your dad's like, "Hey, can you help me out here?" Was it like during Thanksgiving? And you're like, "Man, I'm trying to figure out this licensing agreement." Rishi, any thoughts? Like, was there a moment where like, "Hey, hey, son, join the family business." Like, what? Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> was there a moment, a moment like that, or would you just kind of just did you raise your hand? Hey, let me help you. I would say it was decidedly not cinematic right i think I, I, think, it like, I think it's like godfather or something like michael no i think i think it was just that I, I think it, it was a very natural and gradual progression okay where you know it like started off as you know one-off the favors or you know brainstorming chats and then gradually evolved you know being regularly spending an hour or two a day to regularly spending you know all my evenings to you know regularly working the equivalent of to full-time jobs. So I think, you know, it was sort of a very gradual escalation. It, you know, never felt like there was a, you know, um, turning point. Um, I guess, um, you know, one sort of formative transition point for the company uh, was in 2019, we were able to execute a, a licensing agreement um, with a top 20 pharma company. And, you know, I think that was a huge moment for us as a company and also for me to sort of um, realize that I wanted to commit 100% to, to a building Y-Trap. So, you know, um, it, it all felt very natural and organic. But but after that in 2019, then in 2020, I left um, System 1 and and uh, was working on, on Y-Trap uh, full-time after that. So two quick questions. The first question always amaz still amazes me. How did you, like, Okay, you're doing a full-time job system one. How did, and then you know why traps at night where you're helping out helping help the company out? Um how did you like get sleep? Did you get sleep? How did you like maintain your because you did this for like a year or two? Um it's, it's almost Elon Musk-esque or something, you know, like 
any any tricks there? I'm I'm trying to get more productive. So maybe help me. Like, how, how did you figure out how to like do two jobs at once and do a really good job at it? Yeah, I would say it probably wasn't the healthiest time of my life, and you know I probably wouldn't do that again. Okay. Um, you know I think I think I probably you know it's I think after after I sort of left my day job and was just working on YTRAP full time, I like suddenly realized that I can have hobbies again. You know, and, then, you know, and so I, I would I would say it was not a it was it was it was super productive and fruitful, and it felt like the right time in my life to like be super buckled down and you know just spending all my all my time working, but. Uh, I also would not recommend it as a strategy, or I also certainly wouldn't suggest any of my productivity hacks as being sustainable or um, beneficial uh, for anyone. So, you know, maybe I'll respectfully decline to give advice besides suggesting that it's only just do it if it's necessary. That makes sense. Maybe the, the, the <laughs> takeaway is only do stuff like that, only work two, three jobs if it's necessary. You know, yeah, and that's exactly it, right? It was that I felt like I had to. I really loved what I was doing at System One. I felt like I was learning a ton. I felt like what we were doing there was super important. But I also felt like, you know, the work that I was doing on the YTRAP side was super important and had to be done. So it was absolutely um, a consequence of necessity. I think. It makes I think. a ton of sense. And then You're the other part, too, around 2019, you did the license agreements. What made you want to go and say, I'm going to join full, I'm going to do YTRAP full time? Uh, did you feel confident? Like, was there like, did you build the skill sets necessary, knowledge base? It felt like, hey, I kind of understand how biotech companies work. I think I can take my own shot. Or was it more like, oh, we did this licensing agreement. We need somebody to, to do this full time. Was it internal or external in terms of like the motivation to like go full time? Uh, that's a good question. I'd say it was both. I think it was really those two factors coming together, right? It was that, um, I felt more confidence that you know we could pull it off, and that you know I could, I could, I could uh, meaningfully drive the effort. But then from the external side, it was just also. I mean, you can't you can't build a company where everyone's part time. You know, that's just it's just not a it's just not a thing. You know, I think I think biotech is cool, and it's it's kind of fun to talk to people who are not in biotech and sort of have them appreciate how lean biotechs can be. And I think that's an interesting distinction, you know, for most tech companies where early on it seems like, you know, headcount growth is viewed as a meaningful proxy of company growth. It's kind of cool that in biotech that's not the case. Um, and I think that allows for a more diverse set of company formation and growth stories, um, which I think is 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 neat. But at the same time, you do need some critical mass of folks who are waking up and going to bed every day thinking about just that company. So um, I think it, you know, was it was necessary for the company and that sort of paired with my personal belief that it was the right time for me, you know, as an individual to 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 do it. I'm in the family business, Rishi. Come in the family business. You know, it's like look, <laughs> you know, your son's gonna be in the business too. It's like, come on, come join White Trap, you know, it's gonna be like <laughs> it's gonna be like the Tatas, or you know, like a family, it's gonna be like uh Valencia, it's gonna be like one of these family businesses. But uh could you talk more around well, most biotechs have like two acts, at least initially, technology to drugs. And some companies spend a lot of time on the platform and then make drugs. Hopefully, at the end, some companies only drug companies. Uh, how did when you did start joining full time? Did Y Trap? Did anything substantially change in Y Trap in terms of its like tactics? And how did you make that transition from technology to then actually developing drug candidates? Yeah, that's that's a you know that's a, that's a that's a million dollar question, right? So, um, I think initially, you know. YTRAP, we had so many ideas. Our sort of modular engineering platform let us, you know, try a lot of things. There were there were a lot of possible ways to construct these molecules. And we kind of had like a kid in the candy shop fun. You know, it was like there, there are all these things that we can do. We have all these ideas and we wanna we wanna try all these things. And that I think is a reasonable stage to go through um as a company. Um, but at some point, you know, it became clear that especially, you know, as we went out and talked with more uh, prospective investors, more prospective licensees in pharma, um, we needed to have a clearer vision and, and we needed to tighten up the story and we needed to have a strong belief, not just on, you know, what 
large pipeline of molecules we hope to someday develop, but what are the first one, two, three things that we're going to develop? And do we believe that those first one, two, three things are going to have a meaningful impact, not just generically in immuno-oncology, but in a specific tumor indication, given the current clinical landscape, given the current clinical trials being offered, given the current, you know, other players um, in that space, we, we, we just really needed to boil it down to what is our treatment regimen going to be in a specific indication or specific set of indications? And have we built the pipeline to support that specific treatment regimen? So I think uh, certainly in the last you know couple of years and, and especially so in the last year, um, I think you know the what what the, the the phrase that my father likes to use is we just have to get real you know we, we just have to be very and that's not to say the work we were doing before wasn't real but we had to get real in the sense of making sure that our lead assets in our pipeline were directly in support of our near-term clinical objectives yeah. and viewing everything through that lens um is just a huge forcing function in how we spend our time and how we spend our money and in what scientific bets we make so how Absolutely. did you figure that out? So like, you you know, outside looking in, if nobody knew Rishi personally, knew you personally, I think, oh, who's this kid? Who does he, what does he know about making drugs, right? Like, how did you actually internally build up that uh, repertoire of knowledge, of different skills to be able to even know what questions to ask to develop a drug? And who did you lean on and stuff like that? You know, and your father, probably other, other people in your network. And then how did you... Uh, when you when you went full time on a white trap, you know, did you, how did you how did you how did you determine how to allocate your time? Because you know, before before you just just went white trap, your schedule was packed, and you just you had to kind of get scarcity of time. And then when you went full time on a white trap, probably something felt like, man, I have all this time in the world. What should I spend it on? And how did you determine as the CEO or the founder of the company that like allocated to you know? identifying which drugs are actually going to, how did you set those near-term milestones? How did you spend your time to figure out if these assets you're building are compelling? Yeah, um, a lot to unpack there. So um, your first question, you know, of, of how do you, how do you build up knowledge base to figure out how to do drug development, right? I think there are kind of two pieces to that. Um, one piece was, you know, the biology piece and how, did I and we build up our knowledge of oncology and biology? And that, you know, it, it, for, for me, there was just a ton of learning. And I was very lucky and excited to get to undertake that learning process with my father, who, of course, you know, has decades of experience in the field. And um, so, so um, on the biology side, you know, I felt like that's, we just simply spent a lot of time on it, right? I spent a lot of time getting up to speed. And then we both spent a lot of time, you know, digging deep into the literature, digging deep into our own data. Um, and just thinking really hard, you know, I think there's just, there's just no substitute, um, to deeply engaging with the data, deeply engaging with the scientific literature and spending a lot of time doing that. Do you have like a secret uh, tool? Do you have like a master spreadsheet of cancer targets? Do you have like a, a booklet? Is there some sort of secret, like, like thing, uh, uh, tool you have to like kind of ingest all this knowledge and, you know, kind of keep track of it? I, I would say no secrets, but. You know, I'm definitely a, a, a tool user. Uh, the two things I would recommend to folks who are, you know, trying to assimilate a large knowledge base of papers. Um, I really like Zotero uh, as, you know, a, a paper manager. And I really like Notion for taking notes on papers. And, um, you know, there's a aptly named integration called Notero for integrating the two. And I found that to be, you know, quite effective. Um, there's, there's no sort of a magic bullet there. I'm not like using GPT-4 to like just synthesize all of the insights. No. For me, though, I have found, you know, when, when I have a, a particular question that's sort of um, something I could go and spend 10 minutes looking up, I would say a very substantial fraction of the time I can punch that question into, into uh, ChatGPT and get, uh, you know, if not an answer, at least a good lead on how to get the answer. Yeah, I've had portfolio companies use GPT and similar tools to like get good prompt it, prompt it and get like a good response in terms of like a plausible explanation for something like what's happening here with these genes and this disease, what could be happening? And it's oh, in this pathway, it's causing this this phenomenon. I think, oh, it sounds plausible. It's worth worth the lead. 
But okay, so you build your knowledge base, and how did you like spend your time? And how did you know? How did you know at 2019, like, hey, for White Trap, I should spend more of my time developing products? I think most founders, they would say, oh, let me scale my platform, let me build a larger library, maybe focus on licensing more. How did you know instinctually, or maybe you got advice to say, hey, let's, let's build a pipeline now, this is the time, versus just doing another licensing agreement? Yeah, um, great, great question. Um, I think we got um, some clarity when speaking with other prospective pharma licensees. And you know, this is something that I think is, is conventional wisdom. So I think probably many people would say this, I guess we just chose to go out and learn the lesson ourselves. Yeah. Um, the value inflection point for a clinical stage asset, it, or sorry, the value of a clinical stage asset is just inordinately more than a preclinical asset. And for us, it just became very clear that um, the right path for us was not to spend a lot of time in protracted discussions and diligence with pharma companies, which we did do for a good portion of that time. And, you know, we, I think, just realized that um, the right path forward was for us to develop deep conviction on what we wanted to bet on and go raise the money to bet on it. Um, you know, I think there's an alternate universe where pharma companies were more engaged on preclinical licensing. And maybe in that alternate universe, more companies can be built off of pharma licensing revenue as opposed to, you know, raising money to take things through phase one themselves. Uh, but my view is that is that the world as it is, is not that and, and the right thing to do for us. And I would suspect for a lot of biotech companies out there is, is to bring your assets into phase one, and then engage the licensing partners, um, or at least, you know, even if you've engaged them earlier, that's really the point at which the talks, you know, uh, get serious. I think just, uh, you know, I think you, you're right, right? You want to do licensing once you have human data, the, the numbers get a lot bigger. Um, and licensing too early, there's a risk that you, you, you give up a really good asset too soon. And in, and in retrospect, it looks like a dumb move. So you speed up time till now and you build up right trap, get a lot of data. You have a lot more net. This is not the setting to make announcements. So it's not announce things, but you'll, you'll announce them down the line. Um, are there like lessons you learn? Uh, and have you changed any way since when you went full time on white trap? Like has your perspective on drug development change, biotech, like, you know, versus when you started versus now in terms of what's important, um, how to make decisions, how to build teams, uh, you know, kind of the, the reality of biotech versus the ideal of it. There's a lot there. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. Um, maybe any lessons too. Maybe I, that's too much of a, I've been, I've been reading this, uh, I've been rereading this, uh, Claus of Vitz or whatever. There's a book called On oh. War. Also, it's of course, yeah. I I I I took a, a political science class in college where we had to read Clausewitz. So I'm rereading it, and I'm just getting influenced by like this ideal versus reality, and just a lot of my a lot of you know the things you read, like in any moment, influence your thoughts and questions. So I'm kind of being influenced by Clausewitz to that question. It's like, what's the ideal of biotech, and what's the reality of it? But maybe in general, you can talk about any any key lessons you've learned over the years building White Trap. Yeah. Um, sorry. Okay. Just so like, there are like a whole bunch of things that I can't talk about here. Do you, like, do you want me to just like, I don't know. I think too spicy. Nothing too spicy. Let's do uh, like <laughs> nothing too spicy. But how about uh, if like you had to like, specific like, area that you other do. people, you know, PhD students, people who are new to biotech, and they want to start their own company based on your experiences what kind of advice would you give them yeah you know i'm 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 certainly early on this journey myself so i sort of uh, i'm happy to share thoughts that i have but you know i i, I would say i would say these should all be categorized as, as strong opinions weekly held you know that's that's a framing that i like is you know i'm certainly open to overturning these beliefs in the face of more data and certainly encourage folks to 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 do the same um 
one uh, framing that I found to be helpful when making a bet is what kind of risk you're taking on. Um, and I think for us, you know, you can sort of, or, or for us, or, or, or really for anyone, I think you can you can categorize risk as um, technology risk, right? That's like you know, does your antibody format work the way it is intended? Does it have the right you know developability, pharmacokinetic, tox properties, you know, to 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 be an effective therapeutic? There's biological risk, which is um, do your model systems appropriately recapitulate human disease biology? Right? I don't think anyone advances a drug with no preclinical evidence, but the question is how well does that preclinical evidence translate into the human disease setting? And the third category is operational risk, right? Which is, you know, to put it bluntly, in biotech, not fucking it up. Right, because there's sort of so many hoops you have to jump through, and not—I don't mean to, to to criticize any of those hoops. You know, they're obviously important steps that have to be taken in order to, you know, feel like a drug is suitable for use in humans. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there are a number of operational hoops that have to be jumped through, and failure on any of those hoops, you know, can be can be um, catastrophic for a company. So I think it's helpful to frame the company and the choices you make in sort of this, this risk framework. And I think what we've found is we want to put all of our eggs in the bio risk category, right? We want to feel very confident in our technology. We want to feel very confident that we're doing things operationally correctly. But the thing that we're never going to know until human trials is that translatability is if we're seeing really strong mirroring data, um, is that going to translate into, into, into clinical efficacy? Um, framing it this way is also helpful because it, it helps you, you know, focus on, on how to mitigate a biological risk. So, you know, um, we try to be very self-critical about our target selection and our proposed mechanisms. Um, we try to frame, um, questions as, you know, what is most likely to make this approach not work, right? And that's directly instructive for us because that's how we determine our pipeline, right? We sort of start with the seed of the strategy, a molecule one, and we say, okay, what is most likely to stop molecule one from working? That directly admits theories on what molecule two should be, and so on. So um, I found that, that framework to be helpful, and I think that bio-risk is sort of the right place for us to, to, to to put our eggs. Um, Sometimes, I mean, just I think identifying what risk you're taking and and then manage it. So whether it's biological risk, technical risk, or some other person, you know, some other risk that's you know, and just be able to manage it and, and just know knowing what you're getting yourself into. So you're not like you know you're alluding to in drugs like you can't fool yourself because there's these really predefined steps and if you can mess up on one, it, all that passport kind of isn't worth it. So you have to be really, really, really careful and measure a bunch of times. It makes a ton of sense. Um, maybe I, like, I, yeah, sorry. Go, go ahead. No, go on. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say, you know, if for th I think that's sort of a good way of thinking about things in the startup setting. I think there's a sort of parallel framing of the taxonomy of academic labs and sort of a taxonomy of how academic research can spin out technology. Um, I think you can sort of view most groups as uh, being either target centric or technology centric, right? When I when I when I think of target centric, I think of you know um, Jim Allison and CTLA four or Richard Flavel and TGF Beta, right? Where these folks are sort of pioneers in 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 particular target biology, and they've sort of built up a a deep knowledge base and, and a deep set of contributions on how these individual pathways contribute to, to a disease biology. Then there's a technology centric groups where, you know, are, are agnostic to specific disease mechanisms, maybe even agnostic to diseases of interest, but have brought forth some fundamental technology that allows revealing the mechanism of disease in a novel way. I think of, you know, 
Aviv Regev's group and single cell RNA seq as being an example of a group that you know has 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 really bet on single cell RNA seq and has you know been able to exploit that technical knowledge across you know a a, a variety of areas. The third group um, I think is less common, and I think it's 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 what YTRAP emerges from, and it's what my father's lab emerges from, which is a synthesis-centric academic lab, where, you know, it's not about betting on, you know, deep discovery around a specific target. Um, it's not dependent on, you know, being the first or among the first to bring a certain technology uh, to fruition, but it's about synthesizing the vast literature out there and developing disease-oriented theses on how it should be addressed and then constructing a translational research program to, to you know, test very specific hypotheses um, in a very unbiased way. Um, so I think that's, you know, it, it's not quite the same as, you know, thinking about startup risk, but uh, it is, I think, sort of a parallel view of um, how academic labs might see themselves and see how they, you know, uh, interface with, with, with spin-out startups. That makes some sense. Yeah, I think also, yeah, academic labs. I mean, some people are like trying to like they get really narrow and deep in terms of like a pathway or a set of genes, and then there's tool developers, and 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 so then trying to identify like trying to do doing both is really hard because it requires um, different sources of talent. Where right. yeah. I, I think that's right, but I, I guess maybe my punchline is that I would I would also encourage people to do neither. Right and 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 sort of you know that 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 sort of a third group where 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 you're not making a bet on going super deep on a specific target you're also not making a specific bet on you know deeply developing a particular technology but you're instead making a bet on your ability to synthesize the insights of the field and you know construct treatment regimens based on that is is I think something that um, you know also has a lot of value and is kind of where where um, Y-Trap and the academic research that it spun out from sort of sick. Yeah, that's particularly true for like areas where there's a, like decades of work and maybe you often see this phenomena of like old technologies being ignored or forgotten. And even mRNA, all this stuff is like, oh, just going back a few decades and then like bring it, bring it to the modern era. Um, yeah, I think a lot of value in synthesizing. There's a lot of value in just knowing the history of the field and then be able to like, find an old idea and then, you know, use it. Um, that's something I've observed as an investor. Sometimes the best platforms or ideas are just old. And they might sound new or they, no one's ever talked about them, but they've been, they've been, you know, discussed and implemented for decades. And so, um, so any, any final, what's the last, last question? Any final thoughts? Like if, if, if you, if you're entering college right now, even entering grad school. Uh, any advice in terms of like skills to build up? Sure. Uh, things like that. Yeah. Um, great. I think having literacy across domains is incredibly valuable. And, you know, I think we just sort of alluded to that a moment ago with, you know, the idea that, you know, having, you know, literacy, not just about, you know, the current forefront of the field, sort of the history of what has, you know, been tried before and, you know, what 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 hard won lessons people have learned in the field over decades is, you know, hugely valuable. So in that sense, having broad literacy is is crucial, but also um, even in the present, having literacy across technical domains is a pretty valuable place to be. For me, the obvious example of this is uh, the value of having literacy in both machine learning and computational tools, as well as in biology, right? And I think um, I've seen how helpful it is to have folks that are deep in ML and deep in biology, um, regardless of where they started from. Um, I think, you know, um, I've been lucky to have mentors that fit that bill and sort of, you know, set a precedent for for the kind of, you know, dual dual a scientist that I want to be. Um, and I think it's luckily becoming easier and easier for folks to do that. I think the barriers to entry to gaining computational illiteracy and data literacy are 
falling and have fallen a lot. So I think it is a very good idea for folks in the biospace to build up some of that computational ML literacy as early as they can. And I don't know if this is the audience of the podcast, but conversely, uh, my experience has been as someone who was primarily trained in computer science, that there's a lot of fun in getting into the biology space and getting a deep, you know, not just a superficial, you know, conversational understanding, but really developing a deep understanding of the bio side has been very um, uh, gratifying for me. And I would suspect that would that would be the case for other computational folks who are interested in, you know, getting getting deep into biotech. Yeah, I think on the bio side, you got very, you got some great mentors. That's the one thing you got lucky with. Definitely, so maybe you didn't get lucky with, but just like walking into your room and you get introduced to Jacob, like you've kind of walked your way into some really great biology mentors. And I think that's probably the key thing. If you're gonna actually do physical work in a laboratory, you need to find the people who set the standard. And like Jacob is like one of the best immunologists in the world, so like <laughs> you're extremely lucky to just walk into that room, uh, like. <laughs> Like it, that's probably one of your key moments of your career, going to that talk, and you know, absolutely. Sudden, you know. Um, yeah, I I feel I feel super lucky. And, you know, I the, the obviously the luckiest part for me is 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 my father, right? I mean, that's you know that's oh, why yeah. I, you know had I, I've had many opportunities of serendipitous luck in meeting folks who I'm not related to being great mentors to me, but I've also been very lucky in that my original great mentor, you know, was sort of has sort of been around, uh, has been around my life for a while. So. You're lucky to be born, and you're also lucky that your parents didn't try to like, you know, make you a doctor or you know, trying to force you to, you know, uh, allowed to be subversive too. Like the tapestry of Rishi, you know, you just tapestry of you just kind of, you know, you know, you know how to follow the rules, but you know, you know how to write out, color outside the edges once in a while, um, and and be creative. Uh, well, thanks for doing this. This was awesome. We'll catch up soon. We'll do. We'll record this two years from now, and you'll have more announcements. But uh, I really appreciate taking time to do this. Um, yeah, man, absolutely. Um, this was great. I really appreciate it. Um, had a lot of fun. Happy to happy to do it again. Absolutely. Well, have a great day, man. We'll talk soon. Yeah. One sec. Sorry. Um,